Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, and as you're doing that, I want to express just the privilege it is to be in this room, period, to get to do what we get to do, and not only that, to be able to break God's Word with you this morning with so many friends and familiar faces. Yes, some have been compelled to come this morning. The rest of you are dead to me. So no, I'm grateful. This is such a a wonderful text, and I pray our souls are fed by it this morning. So Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, read along with me. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, God says to us long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke. He spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Would you pray with me? Father, we are humbled not only by these words, but by the fact that you spoke them to us and you continue to speak them to us this morning. Father, I believe we are designed to revel in these words, to find comfort in these words, to be inspired by these words. And so I pray today, now, that you would do that. You would preach a better word. You would move me out of the way. You would move distractions. You would, by grace, allow us to listen well and give us the grace to apply this to our lives. We pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen. Like so many other war movies, the movie 1917 is about a man, about a mission, and about a message. If you've seen the movie, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The the movie is about two young soldiers that set out on an impossible mission. And the mission, as you learn throughout the movie, is to deliver an important message to a commander down the field. And this commander, though he doesn't know it, is about to march him and his men to their death. They, they are setting up or getting set up for an ambush. And so against all odds, these two young men, and we later find out one of these men, one of the soldiers that embark on this journey, his very brother is part of this group that's about to be ambushed. And so against all odds, they, they go out of the trenches and behind enemy, miles, behind enemy lines for miles and miles and miles and miles. And it's one of the most gripping movies you'll ever see. And there's almost no resolution. There's no point in the movie where our hearts are not gripped until the message is delivered. And finally, he, he gets the message, he delivers it to the commander, but our relief is short-lived as we discern and we see together that the commander does not follow the message initially. The commander, we think this is going to be the end of the movie and everything is going to be great, but he actually rebuffs the message. And we learn an important lesson that it's one thing for a message to be delivered, it is quite another for a message to be 
embraced. And these very dynamics are at play here in the book of Hebrews. As we look today, one of the things I want to see is that God has dispatched his final message in the person and work of Christ. And though the Hebrews have heard his message, some are tempted like us to ignore it, and others are tempted to return to what is familiar and what is known and to reach for their own righteousness rather than rest in Christ's finished work. In response to these challenges, the writer of Hebrews gets theological. This ought to be relevant for us, especially us as faculty members. He knows that if his readers are going to endure, it will be because they have fixed the eyes of their faith on the works of Jesus, not on their works. And so if you turn with me in chapter 1, verse 1, notice first, and we often rush past this, but notice first and foundationally that God has spoken. What follows these words is so miraculous that we often rush past this, but perhaps even more miraculous is the fact that God has spoken to us. The very idea should summon both our hopes and our fears. The one who spoke the world into being and now holds it all together has spoken is almost too great to bear. God didn't have to reveal himself to us. Though we need him, he does not need us. Though we are blind, he sees all and knows all. Though we are weak, he is a rock and fortress. Though we are poor, the world and its fullness are his. Though we were destined for hell, he stands in perfect righteousness and justice. God does not need us, and yet. How often in Scripture do we hear, but God? And yet, by his grace and for his glory, he speaks, progressively revealing himself to us, illuminating the world around us and the path before us, and it's difficult to understand and fully appreciate the significance of this great reality and the relevant, relevant comfort and sophistication of the first world. You know, when we, when we have questions, we Google answers. When we have problems, we design solutions. When we want to talk to someone else, we unlock our phones. And when there's darkness, we turn on the lights. But oh, how dark and desperate our condition apart from the precious light of God's revelation. And this, of course, is why we preach. It's why we send fusion teams to the ends of the earth. And, and we send missionaries. And, and without God, we can see in this passage, there is no light and there is no life. The God of the Bible, writes Karl Barth, is, quote, the God to whom there is no way and no bridge, of whom we could not say or have to say a single word had he not on his own initiative met us. Carl Henry describes the miracle of divine revelation as God's unmasking of himself. His voluntary act of self-disclosure, it comes from eternity, from an absolute boundary that separates man from God by his grace and for his glory, God has spoken to us. We cannot know God apart from his divine revelation. The ministry of the church and the work of this great institution is enabled by and built upon the reality that God has spoken. 
So many of us in this room have committed our lives to lecturing and publishing and promoting a particular set of convictions, not because you and I have inferred a set of principles from an unknowable, distant God, but because He has revealed Himself to us. We speak because He, with all the power, all the wisdom, and all the authority of heaven has spoken. But He continues. If that was not enough... Although a single word would have been far more than we deserve, we notice in verse 1, God has spoken not once but many times and in many ways. If you're, you're holding a Bible, God has spoken many times and in many ways graciously to us. God has spoken the world into being. God has created men and women in his image, and God has spoken through the power and wonder of nature and acts of miraculous provision and protection. He's spoken audibly. He's spoken through the law. He has spoken through angels, and in this text we see that he's spoken through prophets. And yet, to the point of our text, the writer of Hebrews wants us to understand that these were partial and promissory messages that point to a final Savior. These are partial and promissory messengers. One commentator describes the progressive revelation of God this way. The earlier stage of the revelation was given in a variety of ways. God spoke in his mighty works of mercy and judgment and made known through his servants the prophets and the meaning and purpose of these works. They were admitted into his secret counsel and learned his plans in advance. He spoke in storm and thunder to Moses, in a still small voice to Elijah. To those who would not heed the gently flowing streams of Shiloh, he spoke by means of, the, of a Euphratian flood. Priest and prophet, sage and singer were his spokesmen, yet all the successive acts and varying modes of revelation in the ages before Christ did not add up to the fullness of what God had to say. That's unbelievable. All that we hear through the Old Testament does not add up to what God wants to say, not only to us, but what God wants to say to you. It's a humbling thing to reflect on how often God has spoken to us. Wave after wave of God's revelation has crashed upon our shores, all of them testifying not only to God's love, but testifying to your utter desperation apart from his word. And yet, the writer shows us a tsunami of God's revelation was on the horizon in the life of Jesus Christ. One was coming who was not a servant, we see here, but a son one coming not only to deliver a message, but to himself be a message through his life, death, and resurrection. Can you imagine just for a moment? Can you step into this passage? Can you imagine their anticipation and at times even desperation as they wait for a Messiah? For thousands of years, God has spoken. He's, as we've seen, spoken through his creative and miraculous works. He's spoken verbally to Adam and Eve and Noah and Abraham and Moses and others and through prophets like Jonah, Joel, Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, Daniel, Obadiah, Ezekiel, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. But then for some 400 years, God's voice 
falls silent. 400 years. Many cry out for God and hear only silence. Can you sense their hopelessness? As decade after decade, they wonder if God would hear them again and if the promises made to their forefathers would ever come to pass. And then a star appears. The cries of a baby crack through the night in Bethlehem. God's messenger, his very son has arrived. And as Luke 2 reminds us, this is good news. This is good news of great joy that we've been waiting for. And our text makes it clear that this message is not just another message in the long line of messengers. This is the message. This is not a gospel. This is the gospel. The word God has spoken to us through his son is his full and final message, a message that carries with it all the authority of heaven. And a message that demands not only our attention, but this morning our total devotion. And so to demonstrate Jesus' superiority, the author opens the book of Hebrews and provides a map of sorts. He provides seven glorious realities that underscore the supremacy, and these are all important, the authority. Why should we send fusion teams to the ends of the earth and believe that people should listen to us. Because God has spoken, and he has authority, as we'll see. And then third, we see the finality of the ministry and message of Jesus. Look with me in verse 2. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. I know I've already read that passage, and I've made the point of reading it again because it's good for us. It's a beautiful and significant passage, and a simple reading of it should stir our affections. You and I, you see, were created to revel in the excellencies of Christ. It's not only our highest calling, it's the source of our deepest joys. So first notice with me as we walk through these that Jesus significantly here is the heir of all things. Here we learn of Christ's sonship and his corresponding inheritance and authority. The the Psalms foreshadow this. Think of Psalm 89, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of all the kings of earth. Psalm 2 says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. A familiar passage is Colossians 1. So many parallels to our text today. reads, for by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, as we'll see, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and, importantly, for him. All things were created for him. And then as we close our Bibles, Revelation 5, what a beautiful image. Who is worthy to open the scroll? It's the slain lamb of God. 
and he's the heir of all things. Unlike every messenger before him, Christ is the only heir of all things. All things have been put under his feet, and he carries with him all the authority of heaven. This is a linchpin of this argument. This helps us see how Jesus is different. And second, not only Jesus, not only is Jesus the heir of all things, he's the creator of all these all things. And, and you notice as we walk through these seven things that they're interdependent. Okay? But Jesus is the creator of all things. Jesus is the rightful heir in part because he is the one who spoke all things into existence. The creatorship of Christ is one of the clearest marks of his divinity. We cannot read this passage and think to ourselves, this is just another prophet. This is just another king. This is just another messenger. No, this is very God himself. John 1, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Who else can make this claim? Who else directs the winds and sends the waves and summons the stars? And the answer, according to the book of Hebrews, is clearly only Jesus. Third, we see that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And if you were to crack open a commentary, we could spend the next three weeks talking about this passage. But one of the things you will will recognize as you read about this passage is just about regardless of where you land within orthodoxy, the point is clear, and that is Jesus reflects and radiates the Father's glory such that when we see Jesus, we see what God is like. That's the point of this text. John 1 captures this beautifully. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, but He has made Him known. 2 Corinthians 4.6 reminds us that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is seen where? It's seen in the face of Jesus. Jesus reveals and radiates the glory of God so that we, in turn, can do the same. Yes, throughout Scripture, we see other chosen servants and men even after God's own heart, but no one is described like this. Who is like him? And the writer of Hebrews, again, makes it abundantly clear, no one. Fourth, and related, Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. When we're evangelizing to Muslims and, and they see Jesus as just another prophet, we can point to texts like this and say, no, he's of the same substance as the Father. He doesn't just reflect or radiate the light of the Father. He is of the same imprint. He is cast from the same dye. He is of the very nature and substance of the Father. In other words, Jesus is not merely God. He is God. He's the exact imprint of the Father's nature. Colossians 1, again, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Colossians 2, 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is why the Nicene Creed describes Jesus as God. If you just thought this was fun poetry... There's a lot packed into the Nicene Creed, as we know. But God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. Who is like him? No one. When Jesus speaks, 
God speaks. Fifth, Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. The Greek word translated as uphold here, and this is fascinating and so applicable to our lives as everything in this passage is. The word here, uphold, means to continuously support, to maintain, and importantly, to carry forward to a particular end. It's not merely that God spoke the word into being, but Jesus is also sustaining it by the word of his power. Creation has integrity, integrity not in the moral sense, but in the sense that it's being held together. And how is that happening? It is happening actively through the voice and ministry of Jesus Christ, who now sits at the right hand of the Father. This is stunning. And guys, this ought to affect how we live and how we lead. God has not created the world like some watchmaker and walked away. He did not create a set of principles like gravity and like lungs and air and and all those things. No, he, he created those things, but he also is speaking. And the minute his voice stops, and by the way, it never will, everything ceases to exist. There is not one atom outside of the reach of the Son's hand, including your life. Everything is being upheld by the word of his power. Colossians 1, again, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. John MacArthur says this of the sustaining work of Christ How does the universe stay in kind of fantastically delicate balance? Jesus Christ sustains and monitors all its movements and interworkings. Christ, the preeminent power, maintains it all. He is not like the deist watchmaker creator who we just referenced, who made the world, set it in motion, and has not bothered with it since. No, the universe is a cosmos instead of chaos. What a beautiful phrase. The universe is cosmos instead of chaos, an ordered and reliable system instead of an erratic and unpredictable muddle only because Jesus Christ upholds it. And he does so by the word of his power effortlessly. He's not straining. And it's no coincidence that this perhaps the height of the characteristics we've read so far plunges us into the depths of Christ's sacrifice. Next, we we see that Jesus made purifications for our sin. Don't miss this. The, The one who spoke the universe into being and now sustains it by the word of his power is also the one, Philippians 2 says, that has emptied himself By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here we observe the indispensable doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. And we're not trying to get theological here. We're trying to get clear about what Jesus has done for us and 
This matters. Jesus is not merely the prophet through whom God spoke his final word. Jesus is not merely the king who sits enthroned over creation. Oh, so precious to us. He is also our priest. He's the priest who sacrificed himself for his people. Surely, Isaiah writes, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all of us. You and I were dead in our trespasses and far from God. There was no hope and no way out. And God spoke. And he spoke through our great high priest, Jesus Christ. How did he do it, you ask? How did he make us alive together with Christ? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us Jesus made purifications for our sins through the horrors of the cross. And perhaps most stunning of all, he doesn't do it begrudgingly. He doesn't do it begrudgingly. You know, one of the ways that you explain the popularity of the book Gently and Lowly this year is because people are desperate to know of a Savior that does not look down upon them, but loves them. Who does not come with a list of things to do to clean yourself up, but carries us. And this is what we see here. God is not ashamed of us. He's not embarrassed to be associated with us. He loves us. And because of his love and because of the joy set before him, he endured the cross in seventh. And finally, notice that Jesus is the one sitting at the right hand of the Father. And this is perhaps the easiest phrase that we're tempted to throw away. We just hear that throughout Scripture, not really sure what that means. But this seventh and final image is given to us to see two things. One, where is Jesus? And, and how appropriate to preach this after Easter, by the way. Where is Jesus after the resurrection? He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And the significance of that is he's not just the creator. He's not just the sustainer. He's not just the priest. He's also the king reigning over his creation. And what is he doing? He's not going in and out of the temple day after day, wearing out the carpet of the temple, making Atonement after atonement after atonement for sins like any other priest. No, the work is done. It's finished. At Calvary, we look on as Christ is crushed beneath the weight of our sin and Christ draws his final breath and God speaks three glorious words. It is finished. Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Christ, our great high priest, has made a sacrifice once and for all and now sits at the right hand of the Father. In these seven marks of the supremacy of Christ, we see Jesus as the fulfillment of the promises of God. There's a way to understand Scripture as the Old Testament as promises made, Mark Dever has said, and the New Testament as promises kept. 
And in these seven marks of the supremacy of Christ, we see Jesus as the final message of God. God has spoken to us through his son and, oh, a better word. And we see, and important to understanding this text, this is not a gospel. This is not a gospel. This is definitive article, the gospel. This is the message. And so how should we and how should you respond to this message? How should you respond to the reality that God has graciously revealed himself to us many times in many ways? How should we respond to God's patience in that? How should we respond to the fact that the Father has revealed himself fully in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, that in Christ we see the full weight of God's love and the full measure of his wisdom? And the answer to that question is very clear in the book of Hebrews. There are warning passages throughout the book of Hebrews, and though there's some dialogue about this, I believe that this was largely written to Christians. I think the text makes that very clear. And so I want you to hear what the book of Hebrews says to us, how they answer the question, how we should respond. Hebrews 2.1 says, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard so we do not drift away. Hebrews 3.7 says, today if you hear his voice, and you have in this passage, do not harden your hearts. Hebrews 3.15 says, encourage one another. As long as it is called today, hear the urgency of that? Encourage one another, as long as it is today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Hebrews 10, 22, draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance. Do you feel that tension? Full assurance, draw near to God, don't fall away. Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for He who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Hebrews 2.1, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. In short, these Warnings exhort us to receive Jesus, to treasure Jesus, to cling to Jesus, our anchor and only hope, to lay aside all other efforts and idols and rest. The the, the concept of rest throughout Hebrews is one of the most glorious realities in all of Scripture, and it's what God is summoning to rest in Him, rest in all the promises that find their amen in Jesus. Promises so plentiful, Spurgeon says, that if we were to lay out the promises of God as stones, we could march on them from earth to heaven. God has spoken, and what? a better word. He has spoken. So may God give us the grace to hold fast to our confession and with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Father, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity to gather around your word. I pray that we would not take it for granted. We would not treat lightly the Bibles that we carry and the word we hear from you. The Holy Spirit that courses through our lives. 
and compels us on to godliness. Help us not take that for granted. Jesus, we pray all this in your mighty name. Amen.